Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a sociologist who has been studying cyber criminals and their involvement with organised crime. The problem is really a problem of employment, unemployment and underemployment, of seeing people who, had they grew up in other circumstances, would probably be entrepreneurs, they would have startups. And in fact, they do have startups, they're just criminal startups. That was Jonathan Lusthaus, a researcher at Oxford University, who spent seven years talking to cybercriminals around the world to uncover the kind of environments where they thrive. Hannah Kushler spoke to him about his book, Industry of Anonymity Inside the Business of Cybercrime. What drew you to studying cybercrime when so much attention has been on nation-state actors in cybersecurity? We speak to a lot of technologists. What was it that, you know, as a sociologist, attracted you to this world? The real interest in what got me going and how I started working on this and became effectively obsessed with it was this, this hidden world. There was this very strong focus on the technical aspects of cybercrime. So people were talking about hacking, they were talking about different aspects of malware or... Um, programming or whatever it might be as it related to cybercrime. And I remember very clearly there was a seminar given by a journalist, actually, Misha Glennie, who's in the UK, would know fairly well around the organised crime topic. He happened to come to Oxford to give a talk on a book that he was writing at the time that's since been published called Dark Market. And I remember thinking when he gave that seminar, wow, there's people involved here and this is a a world here. There's people trading, there's marketplaces, there's all, all types of things going on. And I thought, Actually, this is something that should be studied. And in the department that I work in and at the time of studying, and there's a very good and strong concentration on studying organised crime. And so it seemed quite a natural fit to apply some of that sort of approach to this new area and to try and understand the human aspects of this, because in a way that was new at the time, and I think to a degree still is. Yeah. And how do you actually do this work? Because presumably they don't want you snooping around them all the time. My research strategy is tailored that I try to focus on former cybercriminals, and the reason for that is clear. They're much uh, easier to find and they're much more likely to talk to you. And when you do talk to them, they're going to be much more open. And there's been moments where I've had you know, some interactions with people who are active, and all that has done is really confirmed the approach that I felt was correct in the first place, which is when you find someone who's retired or they've been arrested or however they've left the business, they're usually quite happy to tell their story. And in some cases, they really want to tell their story and to turn something positive out of what ended up being quite a negative a negative outcome for both themselves and also for society. So that's one reason why I don't feel too much concern talking to the various people that I talk to, because in a lot of cases, actually, they've been quite polite, quite friendly and very helpful. And has it all been sort of research with people or do you go on the dark web and look for evidence of people coordinating action? That's not an approach I've taken, actually. So one of the reasons is that there are researchers doing this, so there's really not much need for me to replicate that. I can read that work, I can cite that work. I felt, for me, there was a bigger contribution to make actually doing things in a much more traditional way, which is, you know, we're seeing in social sciences, broadly studying cyber issues, a lot of new forms of data, a lot of new approaches emerging which is obviously quite exciting. But the approach I've taken is to say, well, okay, we have these new things, but let's not forget about the old things. Let's not forget how we've always studied crime. You know, there's a lot of different approaches, but one of the very popular ones when you're studying what are effectively hidden populations, quite hard to reach groups like in in this case, is to do interviews. 
And so field work is the approach that I, that I chose, and I felt this adds something to the overall discussion that you don't get from going into marketplaces, that you don't get from these other forms of data, because you're really speaking to the people behind. So instead of speaking what would be maybe the persona online or getting that kind of outward-facing creation, really, you're speaking to the real, the real people, and you're getting a much better understanding of, of who they are, their narratives, life stories, and the context in which they live. And to me, that's a very important aspect of this that I really wanted to bring to the overall discussion. Are they striking the ordinary in real life? Ah, it varies. So some are strikingly not ordinary. There's a, a number of interesting characters I think I've met over this time, but they don't match a number of the stereotypes that people have. People regard a lot of people involved in this as being somewhat nerdy and maybe socially awkward. And you encounter some cases of that, but I've also encountered people who are actually pretty charismatic. There's a range. There's a range of people involved. You get the whole spectrum. And do they normally have to be you know, pretty technically savvy, or do you have people who are sort of using either off-the-shelf tools or they're kind of the big boss and they've got technically savvy people under them? Yeah, again, it's a very large spectrum because... One of the things I found in my research is what we're talking about here is really an, an industry. And as part of that, you're getting a high degree of specialization. So really, there's a division of labor happening here. And so a big part of what I argue in my work is that you're seeing a lot of different roles that have to be performed by different people. And as a result of that, you see very different skill sets and therefore very different backgrounds and personalities. So on one end, you're going to get people who are very, very highly technical, and these are the people involved in programming various pieces of malware, perhaps in hacking in different ways. And at the other end of the spectrum, you might get people involved who have absolutely no ability whatsoever. So, I mean, you mentioned people buying tools or buying off-the-shelf malware. That would be somewhere in the middle, where they have some basic interest in this, some you know, idea of how to, how to use technology, how to actually use this off-the-shelf software, which is not something everyone is going to do. But you could have people involved who actually have no interest or technical ability at all, often on the money side in terms of what would be known as cashing out, the people who are really tasked with turning these sort of virtual gains into physical or monetary ones. And so in those cases, you can see people recruited into these enterprises who really could be anyone and could have no interest or ability whatsoever in terms of cyber. You did this study over seven years, which is actually a really long time in the world of cybersecurity. How did cybercrime change over those years? It became much more important. There wasn't much coverage when I began this. Finding cases that had been reported, there were only a small number, and it, it kind of gave the impression that this was not a big deal, and that actually I might be able to study it in a way where I could just find all the cases <laughs> and then study them. But uh, we've seen this massive proliferation, I think, certainly in the coverage of it, which also suggests a proliferation in the actual activity, although it's quite hard to say. I'd say it probably is increasing, but we don't have a, a clear idea in terms of really getting a, a high degree of understanding of that. Obviously, there's been a shift in sophistication, in automation. It's become increasingly something that is coordinated. And in terms of industry, what my main approach has been is to be studying the industrialization of this. And I think that's a trend that has absolutely increased over the time that I have been looking into this. And so what role has the mafia played in this industrialization then? Well, it's interesting because I don't think it plays as an important role as people think it does or want it to. When I was beginning this study and kind of conceptualizing things, I thought it might play quite a big role. And the role that you'd expect it to play in theoretical terms, really, is to protect cyber criminals. People from mafias and organized crime groups, you know, their specialty is toughness, violence, enforcement. This is what they're very good at. This is what they do in other criminal markets. So the expectation was 
that they could act as protectors for cyber criminals. They could help them out if they're in a dispute with other criminals. They could protect them from being taken advantage of. And they could potentially protect them through contacts they might have with the state from being arrested. And so that's the sort of role you'd expect them to play. And this would allow cybercrime to become much more rooted in local contexts and therefore allow it to expand as an industry because instead of having solely online groups and organizations that are quite fleeting in some ways because there's a lot of questions around trust online, there's a lot of difficulties to get broad-scale collaboration. You'd expect in an offline setting this is what organized crime would offer, but actually I did not find that many cases where cyber criminals were getting protection from organized criminals. In fact, I found only relatively few cases of that, and that to me was quite surprising. So something else was, was going on there instead. That's interesting. I would personally feel like cybercrime seemed to be so effective that why wouldn't you move your regular crime online? But I guess maybe the mafia doesn't have as much of a protective role to play because people don't need to be protected because they're in countries where the law enforcement isn't interested in cybercrime? Well, it's sort of related to that. There's two questions there. So one is there are ways that organized criminals are getting involved in cybercrime. It's just not protection. So they're getting involved more as players, more in different ways connected to the sort of money aspects or other sort of roles that they can play. In terms of what it is that cybercriminals need in terms of protection, I think you're correct that they're not getting into disputes in the same way that you'd see a lot of traditional criminals getting into disputes because the disputes they're probably more likely to have are going to be online and virtual disputes. So where you'd see a need, I think, for protection and a kind of dispute resolution process between cyber criminals would be if they're located in the same territory and they're in the same business. So they're direct competitors. And in the few cases that I've come across, that's where you tend to see organised criminals becoming involved because they can perform that kind of service. Instead, in, in a lot of these instances where you don't have that direct conflict between cyber criminals, what they really want and what is very important to them is protection from arrest. And in that case, in some ways, it's much simpler to go directly to the source, which is corrupt officials, law enforcement agents, politicians, whatever it might be, who can basically provide that service to you, who can stop an arrest taking place, who can tip you off, who can do all sorts of different things. And that, I think, is really the type of protection that's of the greatest value. And are lots of cyber criminals getting that? Are there law enforcement authorities that are pretty corrupt? Yes, in short. <laughs> in the interviews that I did, you know, over the seven years, I did 238 interviews with law enforcement people, with, with people in the private sector, with former cyber criminals. And as surprising as it was that this organized crime protection didn't come up that often, and, and it was something that I you know, was pressing and looking for and trying to determine whether it was happening there, what did uh, come up a lot in interviews was the presence of corruption, and this being a key feature in many, many cases. And this was something actually in certain instances where people from law enforcement backgrounds in different countries would acknowledge this as well as a problem within their respective countries. And so it's there and, and it's not a small number of isolated cases. I think it's actually quite common and it's, it's widely known about. You write about the four types of organised crime involvement. So what are they? There's four main ways and there's possibly a fifth the first one is this protection issue that we've been talking about, so I won't, I won't delve into that more deeply. The second one is basically acting as an investor within a cyber criminal operation. So that one's quite simple. You're running some type of scheme, you need capital, you can't get it from traditional sources. If you go to a big organized crime group, they might have this type of funding to help you out. And I came across some cases of that, although again, it wasn't very, very common, but it was there. Hi. 
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. The third one is basically these organized crime groups can act as either service providers or partners to cyber criminals. And they're going to do this in ways that uh, tap into what they're good at traditionally. And one of the things they're very good at is managing arrangements and managing money, right? So a lot of the cases I encountered involved some of these groups working on the cashing out side of the business, working on the money meal side of the business, and really helping to run that, and then providing that as a service, either something that can just be sort of purchased, or as a, as a kind of partner to cyber criminal operations. And the fourth one is acting as the guiding hand. So actually taking it upon themselves to say, look, we want to uh, be involved in this particular enterprise. Let's go out and recruit some technical talent to be able to do this. That's kind of related to the third one. Really, in practice, there's a bit of blurring between those two because it depends, is the sort of technical talent seeking someone from an organized crime group to help them with the money side or is the organized crime group seeking the technical talent? And in practice, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference. The final one, the fifth one, which is kind of a, a little on the edge, is what I actually found in a, in a number of those cases where these organized crime groups were acting as the guiding hand in, in various schemes. Some of these schemes didn't actually appear to be pure cybercrime. So what instead appeared to be happening was these groups were taking technology and using it to enhance what they were already doing. So if they're running prostitution schemes or they're running gambling or drugs, they would use technology to take it online in some way. So they might, you know, have websites that are basically advertising the prostitution services that they're running. They might be offering online gambling, or they might be using technology to help in their drug trafficking. And that was quite commonly seen, actually. And a lot of the former cyber criminals that I interviewed who talked to me about being approached by organized crime, this was often the category that appeared, was someone would come to them and say, we want you. Sometimes it would be cyber crime, and other times it would be more just helping with what they were doing already. Have you linked any particular actions or attacks to particular mafias? You get within cybercrime and within crime quite a high degree of localization, right? So they're local specialties in terms of what criminals do in different places. And you see this in cybercrime as well. So we see in parts of Eastern Europe some of the more technical type of things going on in terms of the malware production. In a place like Romania, you're seeing something much more based around online fraud, and particular types of online fraud, like uh, auction fraud, which is effectively selling things that don't exist. And I think we know in Nigeria, people are well acquainted with uh, the old sort of email scams and the 419 scams, technically known as advanced fee fraud, which is you're told about some large amount of money if you only pay the advance fee to release it in some way, whether it's an inheritance or something else. And that's a scam. And so you see this localization. In terms of the organized crime involvement in that, obviously with the direct relationship into the kind of local brand of cybercrime, you're going to see them potentially supporting those operations. But in terms of using technology to enhance what they're doing already, that's going to again be tied to the local situation. So we see certain groups that are known for certain types of crime. And so some of the ones I was mentioning, like uh, 
prostitution and gambling you see with the triads in Asia, that's something that's, that's pretty common. These are services that they're offering in quite a number of countries, and so they're using technology a lot to assist in that. And what about relationship with governments? Which mafias have relationships with the governments? Well, it's... Uh, a delicate question, I guess. Uh, so I should. Don't I you should... have to name names and specific <laughs> individuals. Yeah, exa- exactly. I mean, so I should specify that in my research, the nation state has been something that I haven't focused on directly, and that's been somewhat intentional. The type of work that I do, which involves a lot of travel, a lot of field work to different places, organized crime groups, when you're talking about researchers and things like this, are actually much less dangerous than states. And the reason is if you're not involving yourself in their business directly, you're an outsider. And so I think the risk is much lower. But with states, there's a much higher risk there. And so for that reason, I never delve directly into these issues. While they're very interesting, you have to draw the line somewhere, I think. And that's where I drew the line. You talk about how people maybe overestimated the involvement of the traditional mafia in cybercrime. You talk instead about a new class of entrepreneurs. What can be done to prevent a new class of entrepreneurs seeing such great opportunities? Yeah, well, I think... One of the big findings from this research project, as you mentioned, is who's actually behind this. This is very much an industry. It's very much a business type of operation. And so I think the solutions are actually business solutions. Because what I encountered in Eastern Europe, but also in a number of different places, is the people involved in cybercrime are quite intelligent. Some of the more technical people, some of the managers, very talented, very intelligent, and in a lot of cases, actually quite highly educated. And so the problem is really a problem of employment, unemployment and underemployment, of seeing people who, had they grew up in other circumstances, would probably be entrepreneurs, they would have startups. And in fact, they do have startups, they're just criminal startups. And you see the same with programmers, you know, a large pool of programmers in Eastern Europe and and in some other places that could quite easily be programmers in the legitimate industry. And sometimes they are, and they're kind of moonlighting, you know, they're on both sides. It's a problem of opportunity. And so for me, a lot of the solutions, while being big picture solutions that are quite difficult and would require quite a lot of thought and planning, revolve around ways that we could provide avenues out of this sort of criminal industry into legitimate industry. So it would look like the provision of capital to people in different places that can't get access to it, to give them the opportunities to have genuine startups. It would look like the sort of hiring choices that people make in different parts of the world, to think about should they be looking to hire more out of regions that are producing a large number of cyber criminals? You know, there's a whole debate around recruiting current or former cyber criminals. That's part of the broader issue, but actually just leaving that to one side, I think just the mere effort to recruit people from some of these hotspots would reduce the overall talent pool in different ways. And so I think that's a very important part of addressing this, is driving that capital there and then also having these opportunities for employment. And the final one relates to what we were talking about before, which is corruption, and this is even bigger picture, which is if you can solve corruption, (laughs) you know, quite a simple thing to do. If you can solve corruption, then that's going to remove some of the protection around cybercrime. So that's obviously a very difficult one. It's pretty intractable in a lot of different places, but certainly supporting various efforts to reduce corruption around the world would, I think, have a knock-on effect of reducing cybercrime, but I think that one's probably even more difficult than the first two. You're taking the first one about providing capital and employment. Are there any companies or NGOs or governments that are looking at that as a solution? Yes, I think it is something 
that has been talked about. I think there's certainly already examples of some companies that are outsourcing to parts of Eastern Europe. I think it's certainly a place where you can get very, very high quality programmers at quite low prices. So there's certainly some effort going on already. And I think in different sectors in Eastern Europe, we have seen a little bit of an increase in opportunities in terms of capital. But I think there's a long way to go. And certainly there is still, I think, a lot of difficulty to get that type of capital. And if you think about, particularly in parts of Eastern Europe, coming out of the Soviet economy, and I think there's still some of that sort of heritage in play, it's not an economy set up for a number of small startups. It's an economy built around a small number of larger companies and often companies that have connections to the state. And so I think it's much more difficult to operate in that smaller way and the opportunities are far smaller. But we do see some positive signs, I think. I like to think of Romania as an interesting case in terms of somewhere where you've seen similar types of approaches have occurred and this has changed the way that cybercrime occurs there. So Romania is obviously in the EU. There's a lot more opportunities in terms of the ability of Romanians to move and to work in different places in the EU and also further abroad. And we've also seen, I think, Bucharest develop as a little bit of a tech startup hub. And there's a lot of, I think, quite exciting companies emerging out of Romania. And that, if you look at the nature of Romanian cybercrime, I think I mentioned earlier, they're famous for fraud. They're not actually famous for hacking or for malware. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the talent pool that could be involved in that type of activity is actually legitimately employed. And so I think Romania is an example that suggests this is something that could work, certainly taking the more technical players out. And so not many people doing what you think they should be doing. What do you think of the strategies being employed by sort of international law enforcement at the moment? I feel like the number of extradition notices and things is going up, but we're still talking about handfuls for cyber criminals. It's obviously a big challenge. And I mean, I've talked to many, many law enforcement agents from all around the world, and they all know it's a big challenge. And and they talk in quite similar terms, I think, in terms of what the difficulties are. I think it's quite widely known that cooperation on an international level is a challenge, but it's actually a challenge for everyone. You know, you talk to to some people in, say, the US or the UK, and they'll mention cases they might have in Russia or China or some other country and talk about the difficulties in getting cooperation. But then you go to talk to people who are in Russia or China, and they'll tell you exactly the same thing relating to another country. And so everyone's got a cyber criminal problem coming from somewhere else, even if it's a regional problem. And so that's actually quite interesting in terms of where this is heading. And you get Obviously, the geopolitics of of the present and uh, and the future complicates matters, but there is actually a a degree of common ground, I think, in terms of this being a problem for everyone. And so there's some uh, small optimism, maybe, that, that, that this will improve. But other than that, it's a difficult issue in terms of, obviously, the transnational nature of it, but also the resources involved to police this across the world for any one country is is very, very challenging. And so, as you mentioned, we see, I think, probably an increasing number of cases of indictments, but it's still relatively small. You know, the question is, is there a strategy there that if you target certain high-level players, that that does have a very big impact on the overall functioning of the the underground, rather than sweeping for sort of low-level offenders? That's something that I think is interesting theoretically, but probably needs to be tested empirically and to be evaluated a little bit but there's some signs of hope even though there are big difficulties oh well i like to leave it on to a note of some signs of hope thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me thank you very much 
We've been asking our listeners to take part in an informal survey and give their views on overrated or underrated technologies, which non-tech book gives the best insight into the impact of technology on our world, and what's the biggest threat to the tech industry today. If you'd like to take part, please give us your answers to those questions and send us an email to tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.